0: Furthermore, the equation E is equal m c squared. And
1: uh, here's the discovery. I'm going to make him an offer again.
0: Welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio podcast. I am Isaiah Hankel with Cheeky Scientist. We have a great show for you today. This is the radio show for PhDs who want to get hired into their first or next job in industry and who want to thrive in business. Thank you for joining us. Here we go. Welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. I am your host, Isaiah Hankel with Cheeky Scientist. We have a great show lined up today all about optimizing your job search uh, by doing less, not more. And what this means is is prioritizing effectively. I want to show you a page for a special webinar we have coming up tomorrow. So on January 10th, January 10th, we are doing a very special updated 2019 webinar on industry resumes. The full title is 12 resume secrets from top recruiters and hiring managers. This is for PhDs only. If you go to cheekyscientist.com PhD industry resume, you can join up for this webinar. Make sure you do it now though, because we, as of this morning, we had over 1300 people signed up already. That is a lot. Why do so many people sign up? Because they know that we have the most up-to-date information, data-backed information on what your resume needs to have in it to get hired into a job in 2019. So we'll put this link in the chat box. Again, for those of you listening by audio, CheekyScientist.com slash PhD industry dash resume. I do also want to mention a brand new article we have that you can read for free on our blog. If you go to CheekyScientist.com slash blog, you can find all of, our, all of our articles. This article is titled Five-Step Guide to Writing a Professional Resume in 2019. If you're listening by audio, it's CheekyScientist.com slash guide to writing a professional resume with a dash in between each one of those words after the slash. That'll take you directly to the article. And there's one point in particular I wanna focus on. For those of you that haven't read this yet, point four is about leveraging the fact that people read in an F pattern. So studies show there's lots of eye tracking studies on resumes. Yes, people are very interested in this because hiring managers, recruiters spend very little time on resumes. 5 to seven seconds total, which means they must be skimming resumes. This is why the format of your resume matters. This is what we're going to cover in tomorrow's special webinar, which is at 1 p.m. and 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Again on January 10th, 1 p.m. and 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You do have to sign up to attend. But this F pattern helps you understand why formatting is important and how to set up the format of your resume. So essentially what it means is that when somebody starts skimming your resume, they read the first line across the top, right? So the, the top 130 of your resume is called the visual center. Within this visual center, the two bars that go across from left to right of the letter F is how their eyes track. The first one goes all the way across. That's the longer bar, the top bar of the F. And then they, then they skim down a little bit further. And then they go from left to right, but not quite as far. Both of these F bars happen in that visual center in, if you're doing your resume correctly, what's called the... The professional summary okay that's why that first bullet point is crucial your first bullet point of your professional summary needs to be as specific as possible with the exact words that the company is using for a key transferable skill a key technical skill and a quantified result what they're looking for the most has to be in that first bullet point because that's likely the only one they're going to read all the way through okay then the other two bullet points will be skimmed in that second bar of the F, and then they're just gonna skim down the left-hand side of your resume. They're not gonna re- even really read anything in your work experience section. You might as well just assume that. They might dig in if they're very interested, but in that first pass, they're just gonna skim down the, the left side final bar of the F that goes vertically. They're just gonna skim down. That means that everything next to every bullet point on the leftmost side of your page is what they're going to see. And what that means is is that if you're putting in academic job titles, you're doing yourself a disservice. You don't need to put in an academic job title as the bolded word at the top of every work experience. Instead, we advocate using a relevancy resume where you say project management experience, right? And then underneath it, you can say experience gained as a graduate research uh, assistant at the University of XYZ. Okay, make sure that you're bolding and uh, formatting your resume correctly for the relevant information that they care about. They don't care about your academic job titles, your job duties, they just care about results and the key transferable and technical skills that you've gained. And we're gonna talk all about this on tomorrow's resume webinar. I do wanna mention this article from Nature Biotechnology. The title is The Impact of Postdoctoral Training on Early Careers in Biomedicine. We're gonna talk about this article specifically. In short, I'll tell you what it shows. It shows that postdoc experience does not help you in your career, it actually hurts you. And before we go any more into this, I'm gonna bring Jeanette on for our show me the data section. So we'll see if we can bring Jeanette on here with us. Hello Jeanette. how are you? Good, how are you? Good to see you, no hiccups today at all. So that's good. <laughs> um, we're, we're ready to jump into the show me the data section. Great to have you on. So we've been talking a lot about this Pareto principle. We talked about this with Jim, the 80-20 principle, where 20% of your efforts can get you 80% of your your results. So I want to start here with this first article that you have, Mm -hmm. the impact of postdoctoral training on early careers in biomedicine. Why do we care so much about this? Let's start with that. Why do we care about whether or not a postdoc helps? Is it something we hear about a lot or not really?
2: (laughs) Uh, Well, it's really important to talk about because in academia, when you're a PhD student, the general vibe you get is that the next thing you should do is a postdoc, right? This is how your career is going to progress. This is what's going to get you what you want. Right. Right. And this article and just talking about this idea in general is really important in realizing that that actually isn't true,
0: hmm.
2: right? That you're being told something that's wrong.
0: Exactly. And so let's jump into this first figure. And for those of you listening by audio, um, the figure is showing on the y-axis, number of people, x-axis, year of PhD awarded, all the way from 1980 to 2010. Um, and then on the, the far uh, right axis, I guess this would be a, the, the z-axis, um, although it's not 3D, is percentage. And what we're looking at is a purple line, a red line, and a blue line. Purple line shows starting, uh starting a postdoc in terms of percentage. Blue line shows number of people awarded a PhD. And the red line shows number of PhDs in, a po- in, in postdocs. And this is, a again, a nature biotechnology article. So what we see is the red line, the blue line going up, which makes sense. The number of PhDs in postdocs has increased dramatically. Number of people awarded a PhD has increased dramatically. If you, know, if you know anything Cheeky Scientist talks about, you've probably heard <laughs> that trend before.
2: But this yeah, purple line like, the numbers, right? So in 1980, yeah. it's like about 3,000 people were awarded a PhD and it says in 2010, it's 7,000.
0: And the percentage though is what's amazing. So it went from like 5% to
2: 80. Well, so this percentage I am, if I'm reading the figure correctly, yes. only corresponds to the purple line.
0: Ah, okay. Got it. So the yeah. percentage is the purple line. And yeah. so then we go from 3,000 to 7,000 in terms of numbers of PhDs. Yeah. We awarded. And then, I mean, 2,500 to, what is it? About 5,000 for number of PhDs and postdocs. And this is just in in the sample that they're looking at, correct?
2: Correct, yeah. Because
0: obviously there is at least 10, 20 fold that. Yeah,
2: these people were in biomedicine. So they've got a pretty specific niche that they've decided to focus on, yeah.
0: Right, so just in the US, for those of you wondering, there's at least in terms of those who have been uh, documented through surveys, 70, 80, 90,000 postdocs just in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so we're looking at this sample. Now we scroll down. This is possibly my currently my favorite figure that exists today that has to do with PhDs in their job because it's very important. I can't tell you how many times I've had people just, you know, really dig their heels in and it creates emotional response, which is understanding um, when the, you know, when we talk about a postdoc not helping your career, like doing more of a postdoc is the best way to say it. So the caveat here I always like to say is look, if you've done, if you've done a postdoc, there's nothing wrong with you. you. can, We can help you leverage that experience to further your career. Like you can, you can, we can help you talk about it. If you focus on the right things, it can be used as an asset. But the earlier that you get out of your postdoc, the better. That's really the key here. And so we're looking at a, a figure here with four charts, uh, y-axis is salary, x-axis is years from a PhD, and the four chart- charts are just different samples. So the first one's the full sample, uh, the second one is uh, academic non-TT research, third one is industry, and fourth one is government nonprofit. And we see a red line for those who did not do a postdoc and a blue line for those who did a postdoc. It's so simple, you can't hide from this. So what is, what is the first, uh, charts show, the full sample, Jeanette?
2: Yeah. So the first chart, it, we're comparing this red and this blue line with the red being not doing a postdoc and the blue being that you've done a postdoc. And they're showing the way that a salary changes over the time that you've spent after your, like the time after your PhD. And the graph is so clear that yeah. not doing a postdoc, you make more money, bottom line. Like dramatically, and it's significant, like there's P values in this paper to go with these, this data that for the, for 13 years, you make more money without doing a postdoc. And in the paper, they liken it to missing out on, um, three years, like three years of salary, (laughs) you know, like is what you end up missing out on by doing a postdoc.
0: Yeah. So, and here's the key takeaway. And it's, it's actually, if you go to, if you take away the margin of error all the way to 15 years, you still do not catch up to someone who did not do a postdoc in your salary. So doing a postdoc hurts your salary, hurts your career trajectory, the end. Now, and the longer you wait, the more it's going to hurt because you're just getting that later start on the huge gap that occurs in the beginning. So the gap between the two is much more, in that first year, okay, with the no postdoc to a postdoc. Over time, about 20 years, which is in some cases an entire career, uh, you might catch up, but the data doesn't even show it catching up. That's what's amazing. And it's, if you look at the different sample size, it's especially true in industry, right? So in the third figure, there's no catching up. Um, there, you catch up a little bit sooner in government nonprofits. So an argument that we hear a lot as well, that's just for industry. What about government nonprofit? What is it, Gina? It's still 10 years, 11 yeah. years before we catch yeah, up? Yeah,
2: I think, I think it was nine. Yeah, nine or 10 years. It's still the significant difference.
0: The statistical significant, right. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. And uh, even in academic non-TT, so that's just um, like a, you're in academia, but not a professorship. This correct? is
2: what's crazy to me. That yeah. figure right there was really, yeah. it struck me. Like even in an academic institution where they're telling you that your postdoc is super valuable and this is what you're supposed to do, they're paying people without a postdoc more money.
0: It's insane. I mean, that and, and that's why when we talk about things like the postdoctoral system being broken, even abusive, and people are like, "Well, no, it it is." I mean, if you look at the the numbers, don't lie. And that's why this article is is incredible. I mean, it really is. And like like Jeanette said, the data is very solid. P values by nature. You can't argue. it, And it's funny because at first I was like the academic non-TT, I'm not really concerned with that figure. And, and like Jeanette said, that's actually the most important one. In academia, you're, you're still behind by eight, nine years in terms of statistics before you'll even catch up to somebody who didn't do a postdoc. The only reason for staying in a postdoc is because you don't want to take on the hard work of an actual job search. And the only reason, that's on your end. And the only reason for staying in a postdoc in terms of the universities or keeping the system around, is because it's inexpensive labor. That's it. And, and, and that's the conclusion here. So how does this relate to the 80-20 principle? Jeanette, Jeanette and I were talking about this earlier. What, what's, the, what's the link here?
2: Yeah, I think the link is that by doing a PhD, you've done the most important 20% of the work that you need to do in academia, right? You yes. don't need to go on and do six, 10 more years of work in academia that 80% Yes. you already have reached your peak. There's no need to yeah. keep going. So that's the 80-20 principle, right? Focus on that 20% that matters the most.
0: Exactly, exactly. And, and just to clarify, I, I like this figure. This is from an article titled, The 80-20 Principle, The Secret of Achieving More With Less. For those of you that haven't heard of this principle, we have some very basic shapes to show you. So can you walk us through, we're looking at a triangle and a circle and a rectangle. And it's the first with the triangle, it's causes versus consequences circles, effort versus results. And the third is inputs versus outputs. So just in general, what is this showing, Jeanette?
2: Yeah, it's just showing that with those causes, efforts and inputs, it's 20% of what you do in those categories that get you 80% of your results. And I think I know like, as a PhD, as someone who like really values each of the items that I'm doing, right, all of the work I'm doing is important. Yes. Right? So this can be difficult to internalize and realize that no, it doesn't. <laughs> it's really only a small percentage, 20% of what you're doing that is mm-hmm. getting you most of your results.
0: And this is, this is throughout your life and your career. And this is why prioritization is so important. Prioritization, sequence. As PhDs, this is something that we are not good at. I was not good at it because actually, I remember when I first got to uh, graduate school, and I was a little bit intimidated. Um, we, had, uh, we had courses. My first two years, we actually had courses we had to go to and I was intimidated. They gave, We had like textbooks, everything. And I was like, okay, I'm going to read everything in the textbook. Even though this is not something I did like an undergrad, anything like you'd focus on what they talk about in the lectures, et cetera. I was like, I'm going to read everything, little sidebars, all this stuff. Of course, I couldn't even stay, keep up with the lectures and everything I was doing in the lab to do this. And it was a complete waste of time. And I bombed my first couple of tests. And it just goes to show that we're doing this already, but you need to do it more. right? If you, go, if you have a course, you don't try to read the entire textbook. At least you know all of it won't be tested on. So instead, you try to focus on the highest priority stuff, which is indicated by what the lecturer says. Same thing in your job search. There's those highest priority items you want to spend most of your time on because it's going to have most of the output, most of the results, most of the consequences. Um, Let's turn to a chart. We can move on from basic shapes and colors now. Uh, so this is, this is an article titled Understanding the Pareto Principle, the 80-20 Rule. Um, a quote from the article from Nature. Well, the, the first article with the chart that we're looking at here is from Better Explained, um, which is a site that focuses on the 80-20 rule. And then, then we have some call-outs here from Nature and from Skill Crush. And the call-outs say, 20% of the stock of goods held in a practice accounted for 80% of the value, 20% of the items of service accounted for 80% of the fees paid. So before we look at the chart here, which is just showing the 80-20 rule versus a, a linear line, what is that first call out in reference to? What was what was the Nature article talking about?
2: Yeah, so it was actually about a dentist's office. It was That's what it was focused on. And um, these are other just like examples of where this is playing out that you might not really realize. And to show you that it's a universal, like you just mentioned earlier, it's like a universal sort of Mm. concept that was someone thought of, you know, a long time ago. (laughs) And, um, so that's one I right? that 20% of the the goods that were in the dentist's office was 80% of the value. Right. And then 20% of the things that they did, like the, the services they provided, got them 80% of their money.
0: Yeah. And, and, and it just goes on, uh, the next call it says, 80% of customer complaints or business errors come from 20% of the problematic business practices, 20% of the tech skills lead to 80% of tech jobs. It's amazing. So if you look at this chart, for those of you listening by audio, we have a red linear line, which is used as a reference point, And then we have the green line that accounts for the 80-20 rule, where by on the, on the, the Y axis, you have results, the X axis, you have F effort. So by 0.2 of effort so this is just on it where one is the max on all of it so you could say 20 percent at about 20 percent right so 0.2 of the effort you're already up to 0.8 of the results so almost at the top and a lot of you have experienced this it's just called the learning curve the problem is is that we spend five years of our life at least getting a phd i mean the average is for all phds is like six to ten but if you're in stem let's say five you spend five years and you, you know at the end of that time that you're not anywhere near an expert, even on a field that's as narrow as possible, right? Because you're up in like the 98% and to get to the 99% is gonna take you another 10 years and you'll never get to the 100%. You could get to like 995 of what's known out there, et cetera. You have to put aside that mindset, right? When you're executing a job search or starting something new, you have to remember that there's the other part of the learning curve. Most PhDs try to jump right up to the top here before they take any action. You wanna to get to 90% before you act on your, your job search or to, to change your career path. You don't need to do that. You can get to 80% very, very quickly. So what, what's your key takeaway here, just as it relates before the final figure, before, as it relates to a job search, Jeanette?
2: Yeah, I think if we to the Pareto principle to your job search, right, it's really important to think about what are the most important 20% of the things you're doing in your job search. Um, hmm. We talk often about how networking is so important and sometimes we waste too much time trying to write this like brilliant, perfect resume, right? But that's a waste of time, yes. <laughs> really. If you yes. need to focus on those most important 20%. Mm-hmm. And I really like that last one where I was saying that 20% of the skills accounted for 80% of the jobs. Yes. So to realize that even if you don't have all of the, job, the skills listed, maybe you yes. have 20% and that's enough. Right, yes. you have those important 20% of the skills that they need, which are usually the transferable skills. Yes. And then you can just go for it, right? And just realize that you have what it takes and focus on the 20% that matters.
0: Right, and if you're like, what 20% do I have? We talk about it all the time, speed of learning, right? The ability to teach yourself, uh, you know, your, your internal drive, strategic planning. All of these things are actually listed in numerous studies and surveys as being the most crucial things. You have that, so there's nothing really holding you back. So stop focusing on like the, the the very small percentage that's outside of mm-hmm. that 20% that's not going to give you any of those major 80% of results. Um, so Jeanette, where did this 80-20 principle come from? What's the? Uh, what's yeah, the- so
2: um, I can't remember his first name. I totally wrote it down, but I can't remember. But Pareto, that was his last name.
0: <laughs> yes, he
2: came up with it um, a really long time ago, and he. Founded it based on land use, and he found that like uh, eighty percent of the land was like owned by twenty percent of the people and used for these certain things. And he didn't really say it that way. It was extrapolated like a century after he put it on paper. People a a hundred years later turned it into this what we know as the Pred open School. But it's really founded in this really basic understanding of how resources are used. And that's why it's so universally applied because everything is a resource. And so resources are always applied and fall into these. This, uh,
0: yeah, and it's everything. And it's, it's yeah. every resource and everything is a resource. So this final figure is from an article on pdfs.semanticscholar.org uh, uh, just titled The Pareto Principle as it applies to GDP. And what you see is in the, the countries with the, the richest 20% of the countries, have 91.62% of, of the GDP, like total, like the worldwide GDP, right? And then like all the rest are less than 9%. It's pretty astounding, but we hear about, like this is a macroeconomic topic that we hear about in the news all the time. For those of you that are in scientist MBA, you, you, you've learned this and, and you understand what this means, but resourcing Right. It's it's a verb also. Resourcing is something that's crucial in business and, and, and your job search and in every aspect of your life. So perfect. Jeanette, any final thoughts on the GDP? Was this surprising to you?
2: Um, I mean, no, not really. I mean, because I live in the world and sort of know what's happening around me, but it is it's interesting to break down and to to think about the extrapolation. And I think that yeah. especially right, we like these sort of intellectual discussions. And so take that thought into your brain and see where it is in your own life and in your job search, and where can you make the most of this principle? Where can yeah. you focus your efforts?
0: Agreed, and for those of you listening by audio, so the last figure we're just looking at on the, the y-axis a percentile all the way to 100%. Uh, X-axis, we have the richest 20%, second 20%, third 20%, fourth, and then the poorest. And again, 91.62% of the GDP is in the top 20%. And if you look, they draw a curve, with this cumulative percentage uh, average here, a a red line curve and it almost exactly mimics, right? The the Pareto principle curve up here in green, which is amazing. So no matter what the resources are, uh, the Pareto principle applies. So when it comes to your resources, your efforts day in and day out in your job search, focus on those uh, most impactful high leverage items like Jim talked about. And and there's a reason just in the, the cheeky scientist methodology That we have the module structured the way that they're structured. You get your professional profiles done to a certain level, like that the 20% level that's going to give you 80% of the results, so that when you're out networking, which is really one of those items that's going to give you most of the results, setting up informational interviews, et cetera. If they ask you for those professional profiles, you have them done to a professional enough level to keep moving forward. right, so all of the little things that you're likely worried about are, are not maybe not irrelevant, but they matter so little that you're actually holding yourself back because you're putting so many resources toward it. So focus on the things that, that matter the most that have the highest impact and, and use the eighty twenty 20 principle as your guide. So thank you, Jeanette. Please thank Jeanette for coming thank on with you. us. Great to see you. Are you looking to get your first or next job in industry? You can go to cheekyradiobonus.com right now and get our free bonus that's for this podcast episode specifically. You have to go to cheekyradiobonus.com right now to get this bonus because after this week, the bonus expires. Every week we have a brand new bonus, so if you want this week's bonus, go to cheekyradiobonus.com and we will send you a free bonus that will help you in your job search and help you thrive in business now. Okay, we're gonna move forward here and uh we're gonna jump in to our interview with james gould Uh, jim is he completed his phd in biochemistry and molecular biology uh, and did his postdoc at the national cancer institute Um, while uh, in his postdoc he joined the nci center for cancer research fellows and young investigators uh, the young young investigators steering committee and began his transition Uh, james is a presenter speaker and career consultant and has given workshops and invited talks been invited to talks all over the US he is currently the director at the office of postdoctoral fellows at Harvard Medical School and we will put the link to his LinkedIn page uh, in the comments uh, comment box for all of you so that you can uh, reach out to Jim connect with him he's always happy to be connected to more PhDs we also have one of his articles in nature um, that we have the link to that I'm, I'm showing on my screen right now. Uh, we will put that link in the chat box for all of you in the comment section. That's a great article. And Jim has written for Nature, again, been invited to many, many talks, and has just become a um, uh, one of the world's most foremost experts on helping PhDs make that next step in their career. And the reason we like having Jim on is because he's he worked daily with postdocs and he understands the problems that you face as a Ph.D., especially, you know, we, we like we like to talk to Jim a lot about the technical problems, but also the the mindset problems. And what I really like about Jim is he doesn't just go after the technical problems. He goes after the mindset problems, you know, problems that we've talked about on, on previous shows of, you know, waiting until the last minute to take your job search seriously and so forth. And so on that note, Jim, the, the theme of this show is. Really, it's about prioritization. You know, we say doing doing less to get more out of your career, and I Mm -hmm. thought we could just jump in by talking about what do you think are the should be the biggest career priorities um, for a PhD, a postdoc who is um, trying to ensure that they actually have options for their career, whether it's inside or outside of academia.
1: So the 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 biggest career priorities. That's a difficult question, but in my mind, I think it should be a few things. It's hard to prioritize, you know, maybe 10, but if you can do maybe a top three, being, you know, a, an absolute expert in your field or technology or technique, being a visible person in that field, and then also cultivating and maintaining and activating a vibrant network of former schoolmates, former lab mates, and maybe even future employers. So Mm -hmm. those might be top three. And then I can talk about 30 other things that you should be doing as well.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it's important because I think as PhDs, we want to get into the weeds right away before we start, right? We want to say, I want to have everything figured out, make sure I'm doing everything right. And we don't take any action at all. And so one thing we've been talking a lot about is like, okay, it's a new year. It's a good time to think about like the lowest hanging fruit like what what are like the two things you could do right now um, to set yourself up uh, in a career like if you, you you know we were talking about the Pareto principle a little earlier right what 20% of your activities can bring you 80% of the results in your in your job search I'm curious to hear yeah. your what what your 20% would be
1: so my my 20% might be what you can do right away would be making sure you're not doing this alone, reach out for help and keep those lines of communication and those lines of help active and, and making sure that you don't become isolated and then maybe burnt out and, you know, turn into a negative mindset, as you had mentioned. Hmm. Again, I will repeat, activate your network and continue to cultivate that network. And what I mean by activating in this sense is that you might know you're going on the market sooner or later, or you might even be on the market and just haven't done this yet. So one of the quickest ways to to find positions and hear about new things and reconnect is to just reach out and activate the people that you know. Tell them you're on the market. Don't necessarily ask for them for anything yet, but tell them you're on the market, and you know if they hear or know of anything sort of more of a passive request the other, the third thing would be to be um, uh, you'll probably like this phrase cross training and and making sure what you're doing is multi-purpose kind of give yourself the most bang for your buck if you're going to do something already it's on your calendar it's research related or career related make sure you're doing five other things while you're there like if you know uh, I've mentioned this before in our, our webinars and, and chats If you're going already to your departmental seminar weekly or monthly, make sure you're introducing yourself to the speaker. Make sure you follow up with the speaker. Make sure you introduce yourself to somebody or some you know a group of people that are new that you haven't sat next to. Hmm. So making sure what you're doing and just kind of expand that to the rest of your um, rest of your daily life. If you if you go to lunch, you know in the cafeteria, make sure you introduce yourself. Maybe sit at someone else's table. Most of the time, they won't mind. The other thing is making sure that you're coming from a a mindset and a perspective of positivity and moving forward, making sure that you're planning out your next strategic move. What's the next logical step for you rather than coming from a a place of fear or frustration? Mm. It's okay to feel that. It it might even be very close to the the grieving process, but making sure that your decision-making isn't, isn't coming from a place of fear, but you move through that through reaching out for help, through activating your network, through cross training and making sure that you're moving in a positive forward, um, uh, creating positive and forward momentum. Those are.
0: No, I love that. So just to recap, so ask, was the first one so ask for help and I think that's right there uh, eliminates what most PhDs think to do first because we're just like well I'm just going to read about it like I've spent my entire career being told to learn myself but one of the best ways to learn is just to ask people who know and to talk and, and not do it yeah. all in your head through reading um, I like that the alert that this is something that's come up a lot is actually alert people that you're looking for a job and I wanted to uh, dive a little bit deeper there just for just for a minute because there seems to be like this line you want to walk between not asking people to help you get a job right away and telling them that you're on the market. Very different, right? How would you draw that distinction?
1: So the, the way I would do it is making sure your first outreach or your first outreach in six months or a year or two years, isn't to send them your CV or resume and say, Hey, could you shop this around for me? That would be maybe, maybe, you know, a week or a month or a couple weeks or months into this ongoing conversation, would you mind having a look and giving me feedback? That's the ask rather than the the situation I I find myself in sometimes is, you know, I have postdocs, trainees, fellow students come to me asking for help. But Mm -hmm. what they actually ask me that I feel that they're asking is, can you find a job for me? I'm a neuroscientist. I do this. I do this. How can you help me? It's, and mm. that's not my job to find you a job. My job is to help you through this process. So you can then do it in two, five, and ten years when you're looking for another job because that's the rest of your career. Mm. If you do it right this time, you, you may not be as, you know, find yourself in a black box the next few times you do it. So the distinction is not, not asking for a job but asking for guidance and appeal to their their wisdom having already been in that situation.
0: That's fantastic. Yeah, and I think what we underestimate is that people want to give you – they don't want to do the work for you. Nobody wants to go over and help you move your house, right? But <laughs> they would love to give you their advice on what they did to move their house, right? They would love yep. to tell you all day long about their opinions, their advice, everything. And I think this is the biggest uh, – one of the biggest priorities that a lot of us don't even think about, just ask people their advice, their opinion, they appeal to their mentorship side, which is easy to do when you've been a student your whole life, or you've been in academia your whole life, because you're not seen as a threat, right? You're not seen as like someone looking for their, their job. Cause you're not in the job. It's it, you have a much more, I would say, innocent. Um, you come off as much more innocent. And I, I like what you said too, about kind of converging your efforts, everything that you do, you know, you want to wear multiple hats with we're so used to being very focused on academia and the next paper and this stuff but a lot of the stuff you're doing right now it's very transferable to a variety of career types but you you may not know that because you haven't thought about it from that lens so i think that was great advice too um so what do you what do you spend most of your time doing i'm very curious here i mean i because i used to not know I, i obviously know more now but i think it's very helpful to hear about you know you're you're doing this day in and day out helping very driven, you know, uh, PhDs and postdocs in an area that's in the top four worldwide from the last report that I saw in terms of PhDs in a location, just in the specific Longwood area, Cambridge, everything. I mean, Boston overall by far is number one. So I'm just curious, you know, what have you, like in this past year, even six months, what kind of trends are you seeing? What are you spending a lot of your time explaining? What are the new buzzwords?
1: (laughs) Uh, I, I hope I'm fairly well connected with this community, but it, it's been almost the same uh, cycling since I've been here in 2011. Uh, being able to create and deliver career and professional development programs in the last year, as you asked, uh, I, uh, my office and myself, have created and delivered 160 workshops Whoa. for as many as five, five thousand postdocs in in the Longwood area. Um, I advise and implement and advocate for fair and reasonable policies uh, at HMS and Harvard. Hmm. And probably the most interesting and boots on the ground uh, thing that I do, as you allude to, is I coach and advise trainees one on one. And I hear their stories, I hear their fears, and what the the trends that I have seen, if I see any, is that they're Coming to my office, a lot more informed. They're coming to my office a lot more positive than they have been before. Understanding that there have been changes in trends in and even faculty development, that faculty now understand that all careers are worthwhile, not just academic careers. Mm-hmm. So that trickles down and helps, you know, trainees that I see and trainees that are in my workshops. That helps them sort of uh, take that risk, you know, the being risk averse and actually be able to have a, a conversation that is worthwhile with their faculty mentor, with other mentors, their network, as well as coming to my office and reaching out for help. The biggest problem that I, I encounter, and it's still fairly common, is, and I I've talked to, to you about this before, is they don't know what they don't know. So they almost always start their job search backwards. They Mm -hmm. begin by applying to jobs rather than begin by activating a network, by pulling together their resources, by reading, by asking um, and and refining their application materials and asking for critique and then going out and being much more targeted and strategic. They usually Mm -hmm. start backwards and start by applying and worry about job offers rolling in which isn't the process as you, as yes. you come to know.
0: So what, what is the process
1: <laughs> in terms of just
0: sequence? Because I think sequence is where a lot of people get stuck. Like you said, like it's, and I was, I was the same way. I thought, okay, I just start blanket applying to every job yes. and I evaluate my worth on how many responses I get, which are none. Yes. So then I go through this valley of desperation mm-hmm. and rejection and feeling like i wasted in a sense like did i really waste my time getting a phd is it not really valuable and you have to come out of that so what what's the sequence you would suggest given your expertise instead?
1: so that's exactly what i used to do and you know uh it's my job that i i feel that it's my job to help people not commit the same mistakes i've committed and knowing that you've done it knowing that i've done it hopefully takes away any stigma for those listening that that's what you do when you don't know what to do. So the, the sequence is if you have the time and if there's a timeline, I would say, would say you give yourself at least a year when you know you're on the job market or going to be on the job market, you know, the longer, the better, but probably a year. The first thing is do it a fairly in-depth self-reflection. What do I like to do? What am I good at? What are my values? And begin to think, who do I know that shares these things? Who can I reach out to? What resources do I have institutionally in the lab, you know, in my at my alma mater? Because you, if you're a postdoc, you have at least two alma maters. You know, you're undergrad, your graduate, you might even have a uh, going to medical school, so that's three. So you have all of these resources that are just within your grasp. So you, you reach out and you say what are the trends? What have you seen? Where have graduates from this school or you know people from this lab, where have they gone on? And actually can I have their contact information and reach out with to them. Hmm. So you begin to refine your vision for the perfect job for you. It may not be the first one out of post-doc or grad school, but it hopefully within you know two or three jumps you are very close. So you get this idea, you visualize your ideal job and you begin talking to people who you feel have jobs that are very close to that. You Get their insights and you begin crafting your application materials and you might be passively pulling in uh, job ads and opportunities. If there's something that you absolutely can't pass up, then you need to move on it very quickly. But give yourself time to digest what's out there and how to and learn how to read job advertisements and learn how to read between the lines and learn how to find out who you're going to be reporting to and Mm. then maybe reach out to them or somebody in that company or in that institution so it it's much more self-reflective and interpersonal than anybody gives it credit for Mm. so that that would be a general sequence and then you go to a career counselor, a coach, Isaiah, or myself, and say, do you think my materials are strong enough for me to start applying now? And then you go through a series of revision, maybe peer review, expert critique, and then begin to apply. Very yeah. strategic, very focused and targeted.
0: No, I really appreciate that. And, and I, for those of you listening, tons of value here. I mean, it, kind of turns everything on its head a little bit from what you've likely just thought based on you know uh, skimming articles online you know you think it starts with a resume that's going to be your ticket in but it starts with you know doing your research talking to people the informational interviews like Jim talked about even learning what the different career types are um, getting a understanding the lay of the land and there might be part of this where you need to get your professional profiles done to a certain level first because as you start talking to people they're going to go to your linkedin profile they might ask for your resume Um, but you you know you can get it to that 80 percent first and then after you have these interviews and you do your research like jim said you can take it the rest of the way based on the career tracks you want to go into Um, you know i think as jim said the biggest mistakes are just not prioritizing not doing things in the right the right sequence Um, And I want to go back real quick, Jim, to what you said, because it's amazing. In one sense, it's taken forever. But in another sense, it's amazing how quickly things have turned around. Because I would say even five years ago, you know, when we were giving talks, maybe five people at the most out of a room of 50, right? So maybe 10% of the people in the room, if they were asked, how many of you are sure you want to go into industry or outside of academia, right? That was the number, like five. And now it's almost flipped in the reverse. I mean, it depends on where you go, but I see that over and over again. I mean, it is at least half the room now. Uh, in many cases, much more. So it's amazing how quickly the data has gotten out there, and that these trends, which I think is good, because, like you said, it's it's going, it's trickling up, I guess, to the professorship level, and they're yeah. starting to become okay with it and and support it. What what are your thoughts on on I guess where the trend is going, especially for you know, the future and I don't want to get too um too techy or anything, but with a lot of the you know, there's different ways that people are being trained at the undergrad level and it's only uh only makes sense it's gonna maybe come up to the the graduate level. There's a lot more learning being done online, a lot of changes in academia. Any more broader trends that you see that it might help PhDs to be aware of?
1: So I you know you know, science and research and being having technical skills is always going to be very coveted and very important. The thing to do is to be as open-minded yet focused on your education and your training. What I see, you know, when when you mentioned five years ago, maybe 5% or 10% would actually raise their hand. I know exactly what I'm doing, whether it's industry or academia. What you would see now likely would be half the room or maybe even, you know, 75% of the room raise their hand when you say, how many of you are going to, or thinking about industry? They'd raise their hand. And then you flip the question and say, how many of you are thinking of academia? Those same people would raise their hand because they're much more open-minded and understand maybe some of the nuances that it takes. You know, I I am technically, you know, uh, I have technical expertise in this area. I know it's the next generation of, you know, the technology moving forward, but I also still, really want to you know, pursue faculty and academia, and that pathway hasn't been closed to me yet. So mm-hmm. what they're doing is trying their best to keep as many pathways open as possible until they're ready to do that self-reflection and make that decision, this is the path I'm shooting for, while I also know that I've been cross-trained and have transferable skills for these other 10 careers that I could pursue. So that's mm-hmm. the trend I'm seeing.
0: Yeah, and I don't think you can go wrong with being open-minded with your career. Um, You know, I think it's always that kind of balance. We talked about prioritizing. So in a sense, you want to narrow your focus on the highest leverage items, but at the same time, you want to stay open uh, to things that might come your way because a lot of it just has to do with opportunity, right? Meeting your preparation at the right time. And that means openness is going to help you. Uh, The the very last question I have, because I think it's a great question, is if your institute ran out of funding, if you're defending your thesis or your postdoc's over in two weeks right all you have is two weeks what would you do to have a job lined up in two weeks
1: what would what would i do what would you do the first thing (laughs) first thing i would do is outside of you know uh, telling my wife what the situation was is making sure that i reach out and activate my first level network, my trusted friends and colleagues, and then hopefully they would be able to you know, trickle out to my secondary, tertiary, what have you. The first thing I would do is activate and look at and reach out to my network. Hmm. The second thing would be to start canvassing um, certain positions or even targeting other institutions uh, and being strategic on, I know people there. Or I know their program, or I know if if I'm losing my job or I have to transition, that I if I have to move, I know this geographic region is a hotbed, or it's where I want to go in the future. So why not try it out now? So mm. activate network, look at positions, and then target specific companies, institutions, or areas. That's what I'm how- doing.
0: And I love that. It's so simple. And, and for all of you listening, it's the same. You know, activating your network is is huge. And you know, it goes. It's it's been said a thousand different ways. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, right? We always think I got to go out there and find somebody else who's going to get me a job. You know, people right now, and Jim talked about it earlier. Go to your alumni networks. I'm still amazed about how many people they see us train on like LinkedIn alumni, and they don't spend any time there. You have people that are. I mean, thousands and thousands of people at most Institute and universities that are all cataloged that many of them are working at the jobs you want to have. And just the fact that you went to the same institution is an instant rapport builder, instant. Um, so I think, you know, and, and the people that you've obviously met in, in before, your current colleagues, other people that have gone on and, and transitioned, uh, digging in there is just super, just really, really valuable. And then, uh, you know, surveying where the opportunities are. This stuff shifts. All of you are in research. You can definitely research this information, and I think it's very valuable. So, uh, Jim, I know you have to go. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for uh, coming on and for rolling with the, uh, the new platform that we had to use here. I appreciate it. It's great
1: to see you. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation, and I look forward to uh, talking again. Thank you.
0: You're welcome. Thank you. So, again, you can find Jim on LinkedIn. We'll put the link in the chat box. It looks like Zoom is back up, of course. Uh, about halfway through this interview with Jim, uh, but go to Jim's LinkedIn profile. It's linkedin.com slash IN slash James Gould PhD and connect with James. Check out his articles. We'll put a uh, couple of his different articles in the chat box as well, as well as in the post show notes in the blog that will come out after this. Um, really appreciative to have Jim on. Thank you, Jim.
1: Thank you very much. And make sure you uh, you uh, send a little message and if you want to link in with me. Otherwise, I, I'm not sure where, I'm, where you're coming from and, and how I know you. So give me a little note.
0: Great. Yes. Follow the best practices, the methodology we talk about. Yeah, definitely send Jim a note. He will, he will take note. Thank you, Jim. Thank
1: okay. you very much.
0: This takes us to the end of another Cheeky Scientist radio show podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about transitioning into your first or next job in industry, just go to phdsgethired.com. Go to phdsgethired.com. We will send you all of our free training materials that will help you start your job search now or help you take it to the next level in business. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. What, <laughs>